with Bibles in our hands or on a device or a hardback Bible, uh, open up at Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to let you into uh, the passage we're going to read. We're just going to cover one verse today. And we're going to cover Genesis 1.1. And you may be able to say it off by heart, but I want to make sure that you see it in God's Word as well. But to start our, our series, I want to start with a quote. Uh, this is from Henry Morris in his wonderful book, The Genesis Record. And he wrote, The future is bound up in the past. What we believe about the origin will determine our destiny. Now, the word origin is important for the title of the first book of the Bible is Genesis, which literally means origin or origins. What we believe about Genesis, what we believe about creation, time, and how mankind came to be, ultimately will determine our destiny or our future. An indifferent view of Genesis will lead to an indifferent view of your de destiny. Whereas a trust and a belief in the authority of Genesis will lead to a trust and a belief in the authority of God in your life and the authority he has over your eternity. You see, if God really did create all things, then it must also be true that he controls all things and can do all things. I'm not going to do the three, two, one, make a paper airplane. I hope you've learned that lesson. We can't make something out of nothing, but God can. Genesis as the origin is the foundation of God's revelation about not only himself and his creation, but ultimately his eternal plan for his own glory. Throughout scripture, the verses and chapters contained in Genesis are directly quoted and indirectly quoted over 165 times. The origin declared is the foundation to God's written revelation. It is quoted throughout Scripture. It was David Atkinson who suggested that without Genesis, the Bible would be a skyscraper without its first floor. It's impossible for it to stand. So we approach Genesis in a new study, seeing it as a foundation to Scripture, a foundation to the revelation of God, and the foundation of eternity. Without Genesis... Scripture doesn't stand. Well, we know that 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We also know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, when we put these two verses together, what we understand is that the words we have in front of us in the book of the origin, the book of Genesis, is ultimately coming from God through the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, coming from God through the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture coming from God through the Holy Spirit. Yet God in his divine sovereignty chose to use human agents to write the text. Now, Genesis is a little bit complicated because there's three schools of thought as to how Genesis was written. There's the documentary hypothesis. This is the view that suggests that there were several documents over a period of time that were written after the death of Moses. These documents then were collated by a series editor and put together. The argument for this theory is that the idea is that the language in Genesis and the subsequent four books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which makes up the Pentateuch, the language was too modern 
for anything else than a series editor putting all these things together. But it should be noted, this argument for literally centuries has been refuted with absolutely no evidence to suggest that such a series editor actually lived. The second viewpoint is that it is a compilation of patriarchal records. Genesis is full of recorded genealogies and family records. It's entirely possible that these records were compiled in the book of Origin. But I think it's unlikely that it's the sole author because there's many parts of Genesis that's narrative, not records, but storytelling. I think its idea is that, yes, indeed, there was a compilation of patriarchal records, but it couldn't solely be that in terms of writing Genesis, which then leads us to the third option, which is that Moses is the author of Genesis. Now, throughout Scripture, we see reference to Moses as author. For example, we have Ezra 6.18, and they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The book of Moses referring to the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. However, I think the most striking confirmation text that Genesis was written by Moses came in Luke 24, 27, in a gospel account. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Jesus began at the beginning. He began with the foundations. He began with what Moses had written, and he turned elsewhere afterwards. But Jesus began to teach the people from the beginning. And whose name was noted from the beginning? It was Moses. Although there are several commentators that would prefer uh, documentary authorship for the purpose of our series, I feel fairly confident to say that Moses is the human agent that God chose to record the foundation of his revelation. And so with Moses as author, we can state that Genesis was written about 1400 BC, meaning what you are going to read today and in the coming months is over 3,400 years old. And I think that in itself is incredible, that over 3,400 years and we are still reading the same words. We're still understanding the foundation of God's revelation. You would think after 3,400 years, we would know a little bit more about it, wouldn't you? But this is the word of God. It is eternal. And the book of Genesis is split up into two sections. At first, we have chapters 1 through 11 that deal with God and his creation. And then second, we have chapters 12 through 50 that deal with God and Abraham's family. But the vast majority of all 50 chapters are narrative, meaning it's telling the story of God, of creation, and of the family of Abraham. However, there are some things to note. There is a subtle element of poetry in chapter 1. Uh, David Atkinson, in his commentary on Genesis, stated that chapter 1 is like a, a hymn or a poem. It is unlikely that it was written in this way, but in his view, it's less about explaining creation, rather more about leading us to be captured and marveling at the magnificence of God. It's not designed to answer questions, he says, but to show off the greatness of God. I think there's quite a lot of merit in that that Genesis 1 could act as our worship, as we see the power of God and we worship God at each element. I could see it as a song. We've just sung a song on creation with the children. You could see how this has merit to it. 
However, I do think it's a stretch to say that Genesis 1 isn't narrative, and my reasonings are going to become clear as we go through and as we teach through Genesis. You might be thinking, wow, I'm already bored. Ross has gone to 3,400 years. He's telling us who's written it. What does patriarchal mean? Why is there a hypothesis in his sermon? Well, I think it's important to get us under the skin of the text, to understand how it was written, when it was written, who wrote it, and which style they wrote it. Because the Word of God is living and active. It's not dead. And therefore, each element of its background speaks life into its Word. Uh, Now, I'm not one for going to um, book clubs or book festivals and all these sorts of things. I'm probably not surprised by my lack of patience at just sitting in a seat hearing someone read a book. But when authors read their own book, it brings new life to it, doesn't it? You hear it in a different context. You hear the speed, the, the, the sadness, the, the depression, the joy, the laughter. You hear it in the author's voice. And so as we get under the skin of Genesis, what we're trying to understand is what's the life behind this? What's the motive behind this? What's the motion behind this? It adds to it and it shapes how we view the Word of God. When we understand it's more than just written words. These are not just words on a page, but carefully written, divinely inspired, divinely chosen words ordered in a particular way. And so we come to Genesis, probably in a fairly detailed introduction, but understanding we can't just flippantly come to it going, oh, that's creation. We learned that in Sunday school 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So with all that said, where, where do we begin? What do we do now? Well, A.B. Meyer said, all beginnings must begin with God. So we're going to begin with God. We're going to begin with his word. And that's true today, that as we look at Genesis, I want you to remember this. It's the foundation of the revelation of God. It's the foundation of the revelation of God. And here's our text for today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You could say that verse 1 is a summary of the whole of the creative narrative. It encapsulates creation, the creator, and when it all happened. If Genesis is the foundation to Revelation, then Genesis chapter 1 is the foundation to all we know. And if Genesis chapter 1 is the foundation to all we know, then Genesis 1.1 is the foundation of the foundation. How we understand this one verse is going to determine our view of all of Scripture. And so today I'm going to do things a little bit differently than what I would normally do. Normally I would take a verse at a time, wouldn't I, and explain it. Well, that's going to be a bit difficult when I'm only doing one verse. So I'm going to do something crazy today. I'm going to take a word at a time. And we're going to see how this verse shows us the revelation of God. The first word I want to take you to is the word that is in the beginning. In the English, it's three words, but in the Hebrew, this phrase is one word, bereshith, coming from the Hebrew root, Reset. To be clear, in context of verse 1, Bereshith refers to the start of time, in the beginning, the start of time, which makes sense considering we're starting the narrative of creation. This is the very beginning. This is the beginning of the story. What do we say to children in school? The beginning, the middle, and the end. Well, this is the beginning. Now, some have argued that this word Bereshith, in its context here, means an expanse of time. The beginning being an extended period. This is the beginning period. Then we'll go to the middle period. Then we'll go to the 
end. But in its context, there is absolutely no room in this phrasing or context for Bereshith to mean that. And we'll soon see that the eternal God, who always was, always will be, began Bereshith at creation. In other words, what we're going to see is there's no extended period where matter was created and left to just drift outside. God always was, and then he began the narrative at the Bereshith in the beginning. When God in his sovereignty decided to begin, it began. You see how we view this one Hebrew word will determine our view of creation. If we reject the meaning and context of Bereshith, then we're likely to believe in a million years or a thousand years period of time that is in the beginning. Yet if we accept Bereshith in its context, then we accept that the beginning was marked by God determining when the beginning was. There was no endless periods of time prior to this. We're challenged with this very first word, Bereshith. Will we accept its context, or will we reject its context? Yet there was indeed something before the beginning of creation. There was God, our second word. Our second Hebrew word we are met with is Elohim, or Elohim, the creator God. For a moment, I want you to see the magnitude of this. It is the first time in all of Scripture that the divine name of God is written. Before anything has happened in Scripture, before anything has happened, who is central stage? Elohim. And I think that speaks volumes to us today. Yet I think it gains even more significance when we go from the beginning to the very end. Revelation twenty-two twenty-one: The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Do you see, in the beginning, we have the creator God who brought all things into being. And at the end, we have the son of God who will usher in the eternal age as he creates the new heaven and the new earth. The eternal God is the author and the perfecter of all things. Even more interesting is the fact that Elohim is a plural Hebrew word yet used in its singular form here in Genesis 1.1. Therefore, it means God is one, yet more than one. God is one, yet more than one. It is not stated plainly, but in the very first verse of Scripture, in this second word, we're seeing hint to a triune God. The Father who created all things, the Spirit who inspires Scripture, and the Son who would bring salvation through means of atonement on the cross. One word, Elohim. One word, and our minds are blown. We have the beginning, we have the middle, the end. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have creation, we have salvation, we have eternal life in one word. And how incredible that that word isn't Bereshith, it's Elohim, it's God. So we have in the beginning God, and our next word is created, coming from the Hebrew word bara, literally meaning to create. The word, though, is exclusively used in connection with Elohim. As Wenham state, it means God's effortless, totally free, and unbound creating. Barra refers to the unique ability to God creating. Romans 4.17, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. No human being can create they can only make or mold or design, but they cannot create. 
because all things that have been created have been created. We said to the children, make a paper airplane. Could they just create one? We had to give them the material. We had to give them the design. God alone is infinite and omnipotent. He alone has the ability and power to create, which simply means God can create, command, transform, and establish whatever he pleases. And what we've learned is Bereshith, in the beginning, Elohim, God, the one who is alone God but more, creates Bara. So what did he create? Our next word is the heavens, coming from the Hebrew word Shemayim. Several commentators would suggest that in modern terms we would say that it means space or cosmos, essentially the expanse above, the expanse that we cannot see the end of, the expanse we can barely even see the beginning of. It essentially refers to that expanse, the unseen, the the home of God and the angels. But God also created the earth, coming from the Hebrew word Eretz, which can mean land or earth. It refers to basic matter. And what we'll see next week is that basic matter was organized and established in the rest of the created narrative. And so, folks, we have our first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or in the Hebrew, Bereshith Elohim Barashamayim et Eretz. Now, before we go any further into applications today as to figure out what this one verse could mean to us this week, I want to establish two more things. The first comes from Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In all the technical language and the building of context, let us never forget this one fact, that God is eternal. He was before the beginning. He was before the Bereshith, and he will be after the end. He is alone, eternal. But the second is how we respond to what the world will say about Genesis 1.1. You see, the world has so many theories to argue against Genesis 1.1. And specific to our series, I think the world has many arguments that degrade a creation by a creator. And again, going back to the Genesis record in Henry Morris, I found a wonderful quote. It was actually uh, suggested to me by one of the lecturers out at New Tribes Mission. And I'm going to read this quote. It's not going to be on the screen, and I I purposely didn't put it on the screen. I want you to listen to this. If you want a copy of the quote, I can give it to you after the sermon. I want you to listen to this. This one verse, meaning Genesis 1-1, refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and meaning of the world. Number one, it refutes atheism because the universe was created by God, Elohim. It refutes pantheism for God is transcendent to that which he created. God is not creation, he is creator. It refutes polytheism for one God created all things. There's not multiple gods, there's just one. It refutes materialism for matter had a beginning. All created things had a beginning. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. He didn't need a second. He didn't need anyone else to do it for him. He could do it alone. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And it refutes evolutionism because God created all things. 
So you see, folks, Genesis 1.1 is the foundation of the foundation of the revelation of God. How we treat Genesis 1.1 will ultimately lead to how we treat the whole of Scripture. And so the authority of Scripture ultimately speaks for itself. We're to open it and we're to marvel at Elohim who spoke all things into being. But the question for us is, what shall we take from this one verse for this week? What will transform our weeks from today's passage? And I have two things I want us to remember and establish in our hearts this week, and we'll delve a little bit more into them in our Dig Deeper house groups. Here's the first one. You mean something to God. You mean something to God. If we were to believe what society so often tries to get us to believe, then we would have all come into being by a random chance. It is this random chance that after centuries, the world still actually cannot establish what the origin is. Which leads to only one possibility, that your entire being, as a result of a moment that just happened, is just a chance. Which means your life has ultimately no depth to it, and you're just a randomer in a random world. Yet if we believe in Genesis 1.1, then incredibly you mean something. Not just in the here and now, but you mean something to the eternal God. You're not a result of chance. You're a divine creation. You're not identified by the world's labels. You're identified as created child of God. So you mean so much to God that in his divine creation and his divine plan, he sends his only son so that you might be brought back to God through salvation in Christ to dwell with him for eternity. I think if we look over the last 18 months, COVID has meant for many of us that our dreams and our goals have been completely shattered. For many of us, we've been cooped up in homes alone with limited visits and limited calls. We felt alone, we felt overwhelmed, and we have this overwhelming sense of fear that we don't know what's coming our way. We have watched loved ones suffer, and we've crumbled under the never-ending pressure. And so I want to say with deep conviction today from Genesis 1-1, you mean something to God. Your life is precious in his eyes. Revelation 3.20 tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If we mean something to God, then we need to open the door to Jesus and marvel at Elohim who created you, established you, saved you, set your soul safe and secure in eternity with him. I want to make sure today that you do not leave thinking your life is meaningless. It means something to God. I think that changes our view of how we handle the coming six months, year, two years, or however long COVID's going to be part of our world. We don't spiral in loss and confusion. We remain rooted in Christ, the solid rock, because we know we mean something to him. And the second aspect I want to say is that Elohim, God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Now, as a dad of three children, I am known in our house as the guy that fixes things. 
Whatever it might be, whether it be a toy or a blind, if it's broken, the girls will come to me and say, Dad, can you fix it? As the years have gone by, I've become a master of gluing, screwing, hammering, sellotaping, you name it, even running to the store, buying a new one and pretending it's fixed. I am a good guy when it comes to that. However, as our girls have got older, they're beginning to learn that even though I am a master in all of these things, there is a limit to my ability. They have learned that I, in fact, cannot fix everything. That's when I take my laptop out and remove the back and show them that I can remove the back of a laptop. What I don't tell them is I have no idea how to fix the laptop. But they're beginning to have this knowledge that I do not have the ability or knowledge to fix everything. You see, God is not like that, though. He created everything, so he knows how everything works. Therefore, he knows how everything can be fixed. More than just knowing, he's powerful enough to provide the solution, to provide the sellotape, the gluing. He knows how to fix it. And when we consider this on the largest scale, God knows our tarnished souls are tarnished with sin. And he knows the only solution is to bring someone, and that someone has to be Jesus. And more than knowing, he sends Jesus to fix the problem. That means for each one of us, if we come to Jesus and we hand our lives over to him, our sinful souls are transformed into souls that are as white as snow. God fixes our sin problem. Yet I think it's important to also remember the small scale on the everyday matters. God is all-powerful. When everything in life would fail, God doesn't. And how can we say that? How can, how can we say with such assurity, such conviction that God won't fail? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He sustains all things, holds all things, works all things for our good. We shouldn't be going through life trusting in our own abilities. I'm going to be fairly blunt and fairly clear with you today. You're going to fail. You can't fix everything. And therefore, we need to stop trying to fix everything. We need to go to God who knows you, who knows the issues, who knows what you're facing and has the power to change everything. What you're going to soon find out is as you do that, the things in this world don't actually get fixed, but your own heart gets fixed and you approach the things of this world very differently. Folks, in one verse, we have an eternal God revealing his knowledge, revealing his power, revealing his uniqueness and his desire to bring about our salvation. The question we have to wrangle with this week is this, will we trust in God? Not just with our very soul. I think many of us in the room will be Christians today and we say, oh yeah, yeah, hands up. I've trusted in God with my soul. But you forgot to trust God with every part of your day. Will we trust Elohim, who in the Bereshith, Bara created the heavens and the earth? If he can do that, he can deal with any one of your problems. We are called to trust him. Let's pray.
Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you for Genesis 1-1. We thank you that you are the creator God. We thank you that it wasn't just some expansive time and chance and random things happening. Father, we thank you that we're not just randomers in a random world. We thank you that we mean something to you, that you created us, that it's for your glory that we exist, that in each part of our day, you know what's going on. You know us. You know us in the most intimate way. You know what things are broken in our lives. You know what things you've fixed in our lives. You know what things need to still be fixed in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would go to you, that we would trust the Elohim, the the God who created all things. Father, we know things are broken in our world. We know things are broken in our lives. We know things are broken in our church. Because, Father, this is a broken life. And so we come humbly before you as the creator and as the perfecter of all things. We pray that you would fix things. We pray that you would lead us. And we pray that you would gain the glory. Father, let us be Christians who walk into this world saying, I mean something to the creator God. And because I mean something, I will bring glory to the all-powerful God. Father, let that be true today, we pray. In your glorious name, amen.